Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. If you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 28 today. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And if you would stand while we read the Word of God. This is the Word of God. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, The last enemy to be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. Father, we pray today that you would open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to the truth of your word, Lord, and and give our hearts the courage uh, to to accept the things that you have said to us, and Lord, uh, to change our lives accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible makes, makes it perfectly clear, and it affirms that man is immortal. And tragically, if a person dies without knowing Jesus Christ, he is destined for an immortal existence in hell. Thankfully, if a person dies genuinely knowing Jesus Christ, that person enters into an existence in God's presence forever and ever. And in both circumstances, whether it be in heaven or hell, man is immortal and man will live eternally in John chapter 5, verse 25, John chapter 5, verse 25, I'll repeat those verses today. There's going to be several that I talk about. Um, you can write those down if you take notes, or you can go back and watch it on, on, on uh, YouTube or whatever uh, to get all those notes. But in John chapter 5, verse 25, I'm going to paraphrase this. Jesus said, An hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And then in verse 29, he says, all will hear his voice and will come forth, the righteous to a resurrection of life and the unrighteous to a resurrection of eternal judgment. So when someone dies without Christ at the moment of death, the immaterial part of that person, uh, often referred to in scripture as the soul or spirit, immediately passes to the domain of the wicked. And their body remains, their body, their actual body, remains in the grave. And over time, we know that it returns to dust. Well, God's omnipresent, 
So his presence is still in hell, but instead of his love and his benevolence, uh, those in that place will face his eternal righteous wrath as he presides as sovereign even over that place. When someone dies with Christ at the moment of death, the immaterial part of that person immediately passes into his glorious presence. Uh, Philippians 1 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. However, their body remains in the grave as well and over time returns to the dust. So understand that everybody will be resurrected and quite literally every body will be resurrected, okay? At a determined point for each, the believer and the unbeliever, the immaterial immortal soul will be reunited with a glorified body. Both believers and unbelievers whose souls have already gone to its eternal destiny, in their resurrection, they will receive an eternal body. We will, uh, we're going to get into the specifics of that in a few more minutes. There's a theologian by the name of Eric Sauer, and he wrote this, quote, The present age is Easter time. It began with the resurrection of the Redeemer and ends with the resurrection of the redeemed. What an interesting thought that we, you and I, live in a time of which the wheat is growing, okay? Uh, and that would be the church. And Christ described here in our passage the first fruits of the crop that he's already ascended to God after his resurrection. But one day, the Bible tells us, the full harvest is yet to come. We get to live in the in-between. We live in the reality of the spiritual resurrection for believers today. In the power of the first resurrection, you and I grow and we mature in Christ. We've been justified and we are being sanctified. But we look ahead to that final resurrection, that harvest, where our glorification of our body will take place and what we call the consummation of all things, or you've often heard it said, when all things are made new. Okay, that's the very end of the end. And this entire chapter is devoted, as I said, to doctrine, and not only that, but the specific doctrine of the resurrection, which is the linchpin of all doctrine, as we learned last week. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we went through verses 1 through 11, where Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that they had already believed in the resurrection of Christ, so logically they should believe in their own resurrection, but they were battling with their own former pagan beliefs. In uh, verses 12 through 19, Paul makes the case that if they don't believe in their own resurrection, there are seven devastating consequences that flow out of that. Uh, he says, if you do not believe that resurrection of the body is possible, not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. Preaching the gospel is pointless. Faith in Christ is worthless. All witnesses of the resurrection, the apostles and preachers, they're all liars. All men are still under the condemnation of their sins. All former saints who have died have actually perished and, and lost all hope. And Christians, of course, in relation to that are to be the most pitied people on the face of the earth if in fact Christ was not resurrected but then he said Christ has been raised from the dead and I could have left that message there last week uh, kind of leaving everybody in the dumps there um, in that despondency and despair uh, but I decided that I would go ahead and skip forward a little bit and, and, and cover this week's first verse and uh, so that's where we begin in verse 20 Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. And this was his anchor of truth. Paul knew the Christians actually believed there in Corinth. And he reaffirms that. At the moment of his resurrection, Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And just to review a little bit, for those of you who may not be familiar with the meaning of this term, first fruits, let me explain. It's really a wonderful truth to consider. The Jewish way of life obviously was one of agriculture, but also deeply held beliefs about God and how to honor Him and serve Him and stay in right standing with God. So each season they were approaching the time of harvest, they would go out and collect a representative crop, for instance, uh, let's say in a wheat field, they would go gather one bundle of wheat and they would bring in that wheat as an offering to the Lord. And that was the first fruits, okay? So they go out and get the first, they bring it in, that's the first fruits of the crop. However, the first fruits served a dual purpose. It was also a guarantee of the remaining harvest yet to come. If I were to equate that with something in our culture, at least something similar, it would be like a down payment on a house, okay? This is a portion of the payment. It's a guarantee that you will receive the rest in full at a later time. That's the best way to describe it. And that's the concept of first fruits here. So when Jesus resurrected, he was the first fruits, the first portion that guarantees there will be a full resurrection of all true believers in the future. And his resurrection requires our resurrection if we're in Christ. It requires it because his resurrection was the first portion of the overall and complete resurrection of the redeemed. Now, you may be thinking there, well, wait a second. Um, Weren't there resurrections of the dead in the Bible? And you would be right. Yes. So you might be asking, well, how can Christ's resurrection then be the first fruits? Well, here's how. That resurrection's permanent. His resurrection was permanent. So if you want to talk about a bummer, all those people that were raised from the dead in Scripture had to die again. Okay? They died twice. The son of the widow Nain, he died again. Jairus' daughter died again. Lazarus had to die again. Jesus' body laid in the grave lifeless for those three days, and on the third day, he was resurrected. And our resurrection is similar. It's just going to take more time. When a born-again person dies, Scripture refers to them as fallen asleep. And you see that in verse uh, verse 6 and 18 there. Their spirits are alive and in God's presence, as I mentioned before. And you see Paul reference this in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and also in Philippians 1, 23. And as I said before, our spirit and our body will reunite once again. When Jesus was raised, it was to form a new form of life, a new kind of humanity. He had a resurrected heavenly body, and it will never, ever die again. And we can expect to have a body just like His when we're resurrected. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, When we see Him, we shall be like Him. So He will make us just like Him in that regard. We being all true believers, Paul's making his case to the Corinthians. And so he moves on to his next point, bringing up Adam in verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So because Adam sinned, 
All of humanity was thrust into a new reality, and that was a reality of thorns and thistles, of decay and corruption, of sin and death, and that ruled over humanity. I want you to pay attention to this particularly because it's really important. Adam was God's man. He was put on this earth to obey and fulfill God's mission, and of course we know he failed. Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh of man. So he's not just God's man, he's the God-man. And he was put on the earth, just like Adam, to obey and fulfill God's mission as well. And he, of course, we know, succeeded in his mission. However, his mission involves, for lack of a better way to communicate it, two roles in which he would accomplish God's plan successfully. As the Son of Man and as the Son of God. This relationship would be vital to understand as we see a few verses down when we cover that. So as God, as God, he took the punishment for our sin upon himself and endured the wrath of his own heavenly father. And that's something that only God could do. Do you understand? But as a man, he would live a perfect sinless life in submission to the father Uh, That which Adam could not do, and by the way, you or I couldn't either if we would have been put in that garden, okay? Everything the first Adam did to subject creation to death, Jesus Christ, who in verse 45 is called the last Adam, he turned on its head. He defeated death and he made it possible for those who had been born spiritually dead, which was all of us, we could be born again. And that's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. That there's only one way to enter this world, that's through your mom. And when you enter this world through your mom, you're spiritually dead. And there's only one way to enter into heaven, and that's uh, through the work of the Son. Okay, you must be born again. Romans 5.19, Romans 5.19 says, For as through one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed sinners. Righteous. Once again, the work of Christ reversing what Adam had done. In Adam, all who are born again were condemned to death, all humanity, and in Christ, all who are born again will be born to new life and can abide the presence of the Holy and Sovereign Father. Jesus Christ, the God-man, made it possible for us to be fully redeemed. Fully redeemed. The eternal, immaterial part of us through justification and sanctification, the big fancy words there, but the material part of us, our bodies, will one day be redeemed as well. They'll be made whole, made eternal through the glorification of our bodies at the resurrection, okay? Now notice in verse 23, the resurrection has an order. It has an order. It says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's, at his coming. And I think that second thing is an all encompassing uh, um, group there, those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ is the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming at the full harvest. And we don't know which generation, which day or hour, we're told we will know the season. And here it tells us we will know the order. And it's pretty obviously stated here that Jesus' resurrection was first, and that our resurrection will follow. At his coming. From various sources in God's word, it seems that the full harvest 
will not play, uh, take place at the same time, but rather there's a sequential order in which uh, his saints are resurrection, uh, resurrected. The first resurrection has two major parts. There's Christ's resurrection, which would be the beginning, and then the resurrection of the redeemed, those who believe. And it seems to me that the entirety of the resurrection of his saints will take place, as I said, in two separate accounts, possibly three, uh, as Scripture's not absolutely explicit, but at least from what I gather, you know, I'm still working through some of this myself, and it's okay. We work through God's Word, we study, we learn, and then as we learn more, sometimes we tweak what we formerly believe as, we, uh, as new information uh, comes to light. But first, there will be the resurrection of the believers, uh, I believe from the first century church all the way through to the rapture of the church. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, speaks of this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. One more time, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. I'm going to read it for you here. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So notice here, in this resurrection, Christ does not return and set foot on the earth as we have other prophecies about him setting foot on the earth. It very clearly states that the dead in Christ rise first, and then those who are alive join him and meet him in the air. Okay? And I believe... This is the moment that those who are alive will be changed into their glorified bodies. If you're believing and you're, you're caught up in the rapture at that time, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. Now, I, I personally, I know that there are various views out there on eschatology, and I make no apologies for my eschatology. I've studied a lot, and I've come to what I believe is um, what Scripture teaches on the matter, and I'm not ashamed of it at all, um, but... I personally believe the next resurrection will be that of the believers who put their faith in Christ during the tribulation. So during that seven-year period of time referred to in Jeremiah 30 as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being a reference to Israel, and I personally believe that that means that God is going to turn his attention once again to uh, Israel and to the descendants of Abraham. And it's almost certain that many people will come to a saving knowledge of Christ during the tribulation, and many will be martyred for their faith, as we see in Scripture. It's also my conviction that after this tribulation period, all those who had come to faith in Christ and died during that time of the tribulation will be resurrected. And from that point, all believers who have ever been resurrected will return with Jesus to reign with Him during His millennial reign. Okay? If you could, uh, you can turn to Revelation 20, verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. I can read it as well. Revelation 20, verse 4. It says this, Then I saw thrones, and, and by the way, thrones is some form of dominion, okay? And those who sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God, and who also had not worshipped the beast or his image. So we're talking about the tribulation period, those who have been martyred during that time, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
It seems to me that the Old Testament saints then will be resurrected simultaneously with that of the tribulation believers as referenced by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Here's what that says. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. All right, so I believe that the first resurrection begins with Christ's resurrection as the first fruits, and then the church and ends with the resurrection of both the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints. The last verse of chapter 20 describes all of that as the first resurrection and also notes that the rest of the dead, the lost, will be resurrected after the thousand-year reign if we harmonize that with other passages of Scripture. Revelation 25 says, uh, chapter 20, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand-year reign, uh, year or the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the final resurrection will be that of the unrighteous who will be raised to damnation and eternal punishment at the end of Christ's 1,000-year reign. I referenced this at the beginning of the message, John chapter 5, verse 29. Um, as I said, the saved will, ha- will have been raised to eternal life, but the unsaved will be raised in a glorified body as well, only to face the second death, which is... Uh, we refer to all the time as hell. Um, Revelation speaks of it, calls it the lake of fire. And in that eternal resurrected body that can feel pain, but it's incorruptible, it'll never die. So it's just a perpetual, um, I guess, torment. Jesus will return with his resurrected saints to rule and reign on the earth for a period of a thousand years. And how do we know this? Well, I believe Scripture tells us. I think it's pretty pretty blatant in scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And by the way, again, I I believe that this concept is not unclear. And I also believe that they knew how to say a thousand years. That, you know, there have been some that I've had conversations with folks, you know, who have differing beliefs and and uh, and they say, well, they didn't have a number really to to designate a thousand. So they are more than a thousand, but they so they just use the term a thousand years. And uh, but after hearing that, then I went and studied. And obviously um, we know. Remember, Paul said just a chapter or so back, he said, I would rather speak 10,000 uh, words in a in a in a known language than speak, you know, or speak, how, how did I mess that up? But you understand what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> um, he used that term 10,000, and that's actually an indiscriminate uh, number of time or an indefinite amount of time. This is a different word, okay? That's, that's my whole point there. Uh, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Here's what it says. Do you not know? In other words, remember, Paul is saying this. You're not ignorant about this, right? You you understand this. You know this, right? And he says this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that? 
that's written. That's, that should be known. And I'm not sure how much more explicit you can be about that. But to quickly paraphrase, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, you can kind of follow along as I touch on a few of these points. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to look at first at verse 18. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Okay? Now, when it talks about ages and it talks about forever, sometimes it's talking about in the bracket of time, time itself. And when we go beyond into the eternity future, uh, time will most likely not be measured the same or it won't be existent. So when it talks about the ages, that's what it's talking about. Verse 22, the ancient of days came. Now the ancient of days is God. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one and the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Verse 27, verse 27. Then the reign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. So this speaks of Old Testament saints, not only them, but all saints of the highest one. And then uh, in Matthew 28, verse 7, Matthew 28, verse 7, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and here's what he says. Words come right out of, his, out of his mouth. In the regeneration, and that's the millennial reign, that's, the, that's what he's referencing there. In the regeneration, when I sit on my glorious throne, those of you who follow me, he's talking to his 12 disciples, okay, will occupy 12 thrones and rule over the tribes of Israel, okay? So he's very specific there. So because Christ told them so, the disciples believed that in the millennium, Jesus was going to rule from his throne, and he will give them authority to rule on 12 specific thrones over the 12 tribes. And that is why they asked Jesus, if you flip over to Acts 1, 6, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, this is why the disciples asked Jesus this, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. So in other words, Lord, is this the beginning of your earthly dominion? Is this it? Are we are we in the kingdom? And they had every reason to ask that question because if Jesus says it, we can bank on it, right? If Jesus says it, we can believe it. And that's what they did. They believed it. Notice one thing though, he didn't pause there and reprimand them. He didn't correct them or question their thinking. He didn't say Guys, you got it all wrong. That's a metaphor. That was allegorical. Uh, I was talking about my followers, believers who would slowly take over the earth over an undesignated period of thousands of years until we make the world good again. Like you would have thought that would have been the perfect time before he ascended to stop and say, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. You got that all wrong. You're looking at this wrong. That's a metaphor, right? He never did that. Jesus spoke specifically of his throne in addition, 12 earthly thrones of the disciples ruling over the 12 tribes, and these cannot speak of heavenly thrones. Our passage teaches that Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, was raised. Then an undesignated long period of time passes. Then the harvest, when all saints are raised. Another undesignated long period of time passes. And then what happens? 
verse 24. You can look at verse 24 in 1 Corinthians 15 again. You can flip back over there. I know you're letting your fingers do the walking today in your Bibles. I hope you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Then it says, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, follow me here if you can. We know, according to Revelation chapter 20, that at the end of the millennial reign, Satan will be released to tempt the nation. So all during that millennial reign, Satan is put in the bottomless pit. And at the end of that, he will be released upon the earth, Scripture says, for a season to tempt the nations again. And as unbelievable as it may sound, at the end of that period of time, nations will actually rise up against Christ again. Okay, And Jesus then will defeat every enemy. And at the very, very end of time, it says he will abolish every other existing power, rule, and authority. Okay, They're going to be gone. There's no longer going to be levels of power and authority except in one. Okay, And let's read what it says there. Um, well, first, let me just make this note. note. All mankind who ruled with him in the 1,000-year earthly kingdom will lay their crowns at his feet, all right? They're going to say, okay, you've given us this authority. Now we laid this authority at your feet, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then it's interesting to see then what Christ himself does. Look again at verse 27. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So in other words, uh, this word subjection is used a lot in this little passage here, but it means that everyone except the Godhead, okay? So God's not going to subject himself to Christ, the, you know, the Godhead. Verse 28, and when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So here's what I want to show you. Christ will lay aside his earthly dominion again as a man in the office of man, and he will abolish all other authority forever and ever, and he will then continue his eternal rule in the glory of the Godhead. All right? So he's no more going to serve as the last Adam. He lays that dominion, all of that aside, and he resumes his authority. His government shall see no end, but he just resumes it within the Godhead. At the end of Revelation 20, we see the final resurrection. But those taking part in this resurrection, as far as I can see, have no hope whatsoever. Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15. Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15. Then I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, 
And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What a devastating reality to be raised and glorified and brought to judgment and then judged according to your own deeds and not according to Christ's deeds. Do you understand that? These will be raised to stand before God and they will be judged according to their own deeds, their own works. Those who believe in Christ know that their works do not measure up and we cast ourselves upon the mercy of the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, and he imputes his righteousness to us. And therefore, when we are judged, the Father sees the works of the Son. Amen? But these have no hope. They are, they are facing an eternity in an everlasting body. But that's not where the story ends. In Revelation 21, it speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and a new reality in the eternal presence of the Lord. So I personally believe that Scripture teaches that this heaven and earth that's here now, it's corrupted. He's going to renew it, remake it, just like He does our glorified bodies. I think we see that in Romans chapter 8. Um, and, and He's going to remake it and that we will get to enjoy all the things. We're not going to be floating around on clouds playing harps, okay? We're going to enjoy the, the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and the new heavens, and who knows what that entails. Maybe we get to travel to other galaxies. Who knows? Like maybe we still get to go fishing and, and enjoy all the things of earth, and, but maybe the fish will be made of broccoli. I don't know. Like I, it's, just, it's beyond our imagination, okay, what God has in store for those that uh, have put their faith in Him. But for now, we live in between Two resurrections, two Easter's, if you will. The resurrection of the Redeemer and the resurrection of the redeemed. And in this life, we do everything we can to fulfill the mission of His church. All right? That's our job, to do what He's called us to do. We keep our hands to the plow and our eyes to the skies, awaiting the day when in the twinkling of an eye we are promised we shall be changed. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.